If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 7 today. I've enjoyed this little series that we've kind of put in between our last big book of Exodus and Advent, which is just looking at some of the red letter teachings of Christ, really focusing on the parables. He's good at speaking into a very polarized and toxic culture at the time, and we have need of that today. Um, I've been both fascinated and exhausted. Maybe you're like me in this. I've, I feel fascinated and exhausted by this thing that we have learned to call cancel culture, right? And if you don't know what cancel culture is, it's because you don't have a phone or a TV, right? <laughs> but we all know that it's what happens when somebody is discontinued or shunned because of something that they have said or something that they have done or not said or not done. And that could go back seven years, 12 years. It could go back into deep history. And I'm kind of fascinated by it. I mean, my, my postgraduate work was in anthropology and sociology. I, I enjoy just kind of looking at how culture navigates different things. And so cancel culture has been one of those things that's been fascinating because to cancel somebody requires um, somebody to stand up on the upper deck and look down and judge the villain. But they themselves don't really see themselves as guilty of the same thing or really guilty of anything. It's interesting how it all works, how it all kind of unpacks itself. Sometimes a tweet is dug up, a video is found. It could go way back, like I said, 7, 12 years ago. I've seen people and you've seen people canceled for something in their adult career that they did when they were in high school, right? Nobody does anything smart in high school, first of all, right? But it was something that was probably casually done in high school, something that would have never been canceled. But what was casual yesterday can be a cancelable offense today. What was common then can now be seen as a sin. You see, it's not just a church that has an idea of what sin is. Society at large has its idea of what a sin is. Knoxville does, the Deep South does, our country does. What is right and what is wrong? Society discerns that, but it's not stapled to an outside source like the Bible. So it has to discern it a little differently than you or I do, right? They look at something and they say that that is a sin that is wrong. Of course, it might have been common just 10 years ago. And things that are very common today will probably be seen as a sin later on. I mean, I want you to consider right now that gay marriage was legalized in 2015. That wasn't that long ago. That wasn't that long ago. In the year 2000, polls would show you that most of America found that gay marriage was wrong. Most of America. It is totally flopped in just the span of 20 years, if even less. Five years ago, it would have been considered aberrant and weird um, for somebody to self-define themselves as another race or another gender. Now, it would be considered a sin or wrong to not be an ally of a person who is doing that. Things move quick. Things have been moving a lot faster here lately, it seems like. You see, society's definition of sin, it evolves. Like I said, what is casual yesterday will be canceled tomorrow. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day when I was looking at old pictures, and I remembered my very first two albums. I bought two albums at the same time. My very first two, I was a tween, just a kid. And it was Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, and then it was the Beastie Boys, License to Ill, right? Judge me all you want. It was awesome back then. But if you go back and you look at the lyrics, <laughs> did not age so well, the lyrics of some of the songs that made those bands famous, right? Did not age at all. 
but they're not canceled because the rules of canceling are complicated. They're not spread out evenly. There's no consistency to it. Some people lose sponsors and jobs and friends. Others seem to ride above it all. So I'm fascinated how society is kind of discerning what is wrong and what is right and how we respond to each other. It's, it's interesting. It's also exhausting, right? It's exhausting because there's no forgiveness in a space like that, no room for reform, no, no ability to recruit people into your change effort as you become a different person. We've seen celebrities get busted for something that they've done, said, didn't do, didn't say, and then they come out with an apology handcrafted from their agent, no doubt, but an apology, saying all the right words in all the right ways at the right time through the right social media accounts and nothing happens. They are still canceled because what they did was cast in bronze. Right? They're forever shunned, forever discontinued, forever a villain, made to disappear. It's tiring to keep up with that. It's exhausting. You see, how a society sees sin will change over time. How it sees people, apparently not. So I'm fascinated, I'm fatigued, I'm also ready for it. I'm ready for it, I'm prepared for it. It's coming for me, it's coming for many of you, right? I've said publicly from this stage that at minimum I will probably be canceled at some time in the future just for very orthodox things taught from a very orthodox way of looking at the Bible in a very orthodox church. Some of the things that we stand very firmly on when it comes to marriage and sexuality, the sanctity of life, gender, things like that, those will be on the table for cancellation tomorrow. So I think it's coming. Like I said, I'm fine with it. Paul says to the Galatian church in the very first chapter of Galatians, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. See, here's what I want to get at today. Cancel culture is not just for celebrities. It's not just for society. It's not just for social media. It's rampant in the church. Society didn't invent that. This has been around forever. It's been around since the garden. You see, in order to cancel somebody, you have to judge them first. Judgment is the seed kernel center of orbit for all of what we would call cancel culture. And no one judges as much as the church does. We judge. We judge. Judging others, it requires a moral superiority with no humility. We don't carry any humility into an, in, an intersection with anyone else. And here's the thing. The Bible says we are to judge. And it also says we are not to judge. How do we know? How do we know how to navigate that? When we should and when we should not judge. So Jesus comes along and helps us by gifting us with Polls say the number one most quoted verse in your Bible, and I know for a fact the number one most misapplied passage in the Bible. It's going to be in Matthew 7. We're going to be just in verses 1 through 5. Very short passage today. It's not even a parable, to be honest with you. I mean, he's given us over 40 parables, roundabout, give or take. Um, this is not considered a parable. This would be considered like a, an illustration, um, something like that. Whatever it is, it's in red. I think it's appropriate for us today. We're going to hit it today. This is what he says. Jesus speaking to us, he says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? 
you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. Okay. Really, this illustration is ridiculous when you imagine it. It's supposed to be ridiculous. I mean a log, a rafter, a rafter in somebody's eye. It's dumb. It's impossible. It could never happen, and that's the whole idea. The main idea is that judging other people when blind to your own predicament, it's ridiculous. To judge others when you got your own stuff, sometimes the exact same stuff, is ridiculous. It's hard to help others when you cannot see yourself clearly. And I think eyes, that's the perfect thing to use here. He's so smart. I mean, I know a lot of you wear contacts. I've been wearing contacts since I was just this big, since I had those two albums I mentioned earlier. I think that's probably the same year I got those contacts. It's just a little kid, just a little kid. And now they're disposable, which also means they're not as awesomely constructed and built. So late at night, because my eyes are old and I'm old, I'll sit there and watch TV with my wife. And every once in a while, if I blink just wrong, one of those jokers will roll up like a soft taco and then move like behind my eyeball. I know, and some of you are like, that happens? If you, have, if you have contacts, you know that happens. It's happened to you. It doesn't go up here. It goes up here and then back behind the eyeball. So I rush into the bathroom, right? I pull my eyelid open. So far you can see my brain and I stick my unwashed big snicker bar finger back there and I'm trying to dig it out and it's thinner than a piece of paper and it's clear. I mean, what chances do you have, right? So I'm in there just suffering, but I'm not, I'm immobilized. That's the thing. I can't do anything. Somebody could kick in the front door and start stealing things. I'm not, I'm not going to be of any help to you. I'm back there just trying to, because it doesn't just blind you. It hurts. It hurts all scratch and everything feels like needles trying to dig that out. Eyes are so sensitive even if you don't have contacts, you have felt like a little piece of fuzz. You can barely even see the piece of fuzz. It gets in your eyes. What do they want to do? Shut. Shut quickly. Like, like the doors in Star Wars. They just go shut real fast. And you can't get those things open for anything. Why? We need help. We need help. We're immobile. We're in pain. Here's what I don't need. I don't need somebody trying to help me get that out of my eye when they're blind fumbling and bumbling into me. Even worse, they don't even know that they're blind. That makes it even worse, right? How ridiculous would that be? The main idea is, is if you're going to help somebody with their issues, make sure you're helpful first. If you're going to bring a judgment to somebody, make sure you've judged your heart carefully, allowing humility to lead you into such a difficult situation. But still, passages like this leave us with the big question, are we supposed to judge or not judge? Yes. Yes is the very clear answer to that. Both. We're supposed to do both. Jesus actually, after this passage, will tell us to be aware of two groups of people. False prophets over here, right? And sheep that are not really sheep. They're wolves, but they're just dressed like sheep. Beware of those people. How can you do that unless you use critical thinking? Make moral assessments. Look at the evidence. Use your brain and make a judgment. You have to judge in those moments. It requires such, looking at the evidence that they drop all around them, the fruit of their life, the ability for us to say, hey, I think that's a sin. Hey, I think that's heresy. Hey, I think that's a false prophet. Hey, I think that's a wolf. Hey, I think this is good. Hey, I think that's great. Hey, I think that's horrible. We have to use critical thinking for that. And it's not just Christ. Paul would actually lead us the same way towards both a life of judgment and a life of not judging. 
at the same time. 1 Corinthians 4, he's talking to the Corinthian church here. He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. He's saying very clearly, before the time, do not do it. Do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. This is what he's saying here. Nothing is clear. A bunch is hidden. People do things for reasons, and you don't know what they are because they're not clear, because they're hidden. They grew up differently than you did. They've got issues different from your issues. Something happened to them, didn't happen to them. They've got a different personality. You don't know every. There will be a day where it is very clear, but be careful. I remember when we lived in Tampa Bay and I was on staff at another church, about two days a week I would work with the homeless. And we did this for several years. I would drive up into downtown Tampa and work with the homeless. And there was one homeless guy that always stood out on the horizon of the other homeless guys. Right? This guy didn't have PTSD. He never fought in a war. Um, wasn't missing any limbs. Um, he didn't need any medications. He's the kind of guy that just after a few conversations I thought, I'd hire this guy. Like, if I had a company, I'd put this guy on the payroll. He has his head on a swivel. He's not, I mean, one of these things is not like the others. And so, but I judged him. I thought, I think this guy's just lazy. There's got to be some lazy streak in him. He just can't pull up his own bootstraps and just kind of use the, the brains God gave him and, and put some discipline. This guy's just undisciplined. He needs discipline. And after about a year of judging him, I just asked him, hey, we've known each other a little bit of time. How did you get to the streets? How did you get here? He goes, it's pretty easy, but sad story, Luke. He's like, I'm actually an attorney, or I was. He said, and I was in a great firm, upward trajectory. My daughter, their only child had a blood disorder, died tragically, and he couldn't cope with it. Just couldn't cope with it. Picked up alcohol and tried to numb his way through something like that. It broke his marriage. Loses his wife the very next year. So what does he do? He drinks even more, goes further into the hole, further into the hole, until his performance at work started to be jeopardized, and then they let him go. Eventually, he had to sell his house to survive. He lived in his car. Eventually, he had to sell the car to survive on the streets, and there he is talking to me. And I was judging this guy. For what? Undisciplined and being lazy. Here's the thing. Without Christ, without Christ, I lose my daughter to a rare blood disorder. I don't know, how I fear, I don't, I don't know that I fare much better. I don't know that I fare any differently at all. Actually, even today, I still struggle with men, mostly. I can, I can reserve my nastiest criticism, my hyper-criticism for men who won't lead. Men who just refuse to stand up and lead. That's what gets me to where I rant the most, I vent the most, I get more hypercritical. I've aged and I've softened in my age when I start to hear about how some of these men were led when they were kids, some of the things that they went through. And then I realize it's not as easy as it looks on the surface. There are things lurking that makes their life different. I think that's what Paul's talking about right here. Do not pronounce judgment before the time. I have in the past judged speedily and hypercritically where the Bible has told me to tread very carefully. But then he says one chapter later, one chapter, same people, same breath, same wavelength. He says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outsides or those outside 
purge the evil person from among you. So we are to judge each other. We are to judge each other, even to the point of purging evil people out, which you would read about in 1 Corinthians 6 as well. Why? Why are we able to do that? Because we are not removed from a standard. We are all under the same Bible, worshiping the same God by the power of the same Holy Spirit, glued together by the power of the same Christ and the same gospel. We are able to use our critical thinking with each other. We judge each other slowly, carefully, humbly, honestly, helpfully, helpfully, but we do judge. See, judge not lest ye be judged, which is we usually hear it in the King James whenever it's spit, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged, has turned into this soft mandate to be tolerant for the sake of being tolerant. To just excuse yourself from the mess of other people because God knows we have our own mess and who are we to get into someone else's business? And we hide behind that passage. It's misapplied when we do that. Jesus never means for us to surrender our critical thinking It doesn't mean for us to be tolerant of sin either. Sin is sin. Evil is evil. We're not only allowed to see it and judge it, we're called to see it and judge it. We are to form moral judgments on each other carefully, humbly, honestly, helpfully. If we could not, think of how much of the Bible we wouldn't even be able to use anymore. And you have to go to Matthew 18 where it talks about church discipline and just hit delete on it. Same thing with 1 Corinthians 5 and 6. Just delete it. No, no ability to lead people to confess their sins. No, no reason for accountability because that would require judgment and critical thinking. No courage required to step into the lives of others. No care, no love, no effort, no nothing. My theory is not that the church judges too much but that it just judges incorrectly. I just don't think we can be very helpful in our judgment. And I think it's because we tell ourselves that it's none of our business. That's their life. That's their life. I'm not going to involve myself in their life. Why not? It's the most loving thing you can do. So the summary of what he's saying is is don't be a fault-finding hypocrite. That's the point. It's not to not judge. It's to not be a fault-finding hypocrite. Help humbly. And you know the difference, right? It's not confusing. You've had people judge you incorrectly. You've been wrongly judged for things, haven't you? Didn't feel great, did it? You know how this feels. But also, you've probably had somebody walk through a passage like this, pull a rafter out of their eye, walk next to you, and then humbly help you through whatever issue you are going through, and you felt loved. You felt understood. You didn't feel jeopardized. You didn't feel intimidated, encroached upon. One requires a ton of courage and love. The other requires none. J.C. Ryle is a writer and a theologian. He says this about this particular passage. What our Lord means to condemn is a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbor's and make the worst of them. He's describing what, I've, what I'm calling a spring-loaded hypercritical nature, a spring-loaded readiness to take the failures of people, the issues of people, and highlight them for everyone to see as we look down upon them as villains from the upper deck as though we don't have anything going on in our life, right? And that lacks humility, and Jesus hates it. It lacks courage, it lacks love, and Jesus hates it. 
And instead of spurring each other into joy and health and love, we stand above as moral superiors. And we say, just like the Pharisee does in another parable, God, I'm sure glad I'm not like that guy. I'm so glad I'm not like that guy. I'll be honest, this passage hits me hard. I was telling the guys coming up to the stage earlier, this hits me between the eyes. I have a spring-loaded, hypercritical nature to me when I'm not in a good place. I could rant. I could vent. Sure, I'll be by myself, but I can still do it. What does that mean if, that I'm not judging people? And I can be especially nasty when what I see seems so obvious. It seems so basic and clear. And when it feels so clear, I feel like I have accurate truth and reality, so I have a freedom to vent. I have a freedom just to call a spade a spade. That's what we say. I have a freedom to say whatever comes to my mind to say because I feel like I see everything properly. Maybe you're like me on this, making judgments without taking the long route through your own heart. I mean, it looks like correcting somebody about being lewd or crass with their mouth and then racing to listen to a podcast episode, which is really nothing but gossip. There's a rafter in our eye, right? Or, or it, might be, it might be huffing when you hear somebody's theolo- their theology. They say something about God, and you're like, oh, you roll your eyes. And listen, I am the king of the eye rollers. No one in this room can roll their eyes as good as I can roll my eyes. I'm pretty sure I've broken blood vessels because I've rolled them so fast and so far to the back of my head because I'll hear something that somebody says about God. I'm like, right, that's what he means there, you know? And I get so critical. And yet, I can at the same time not face the fact that maybe I haven't even really read the word in the last three days, three weeks, three months, that I've not nurtured my own affections for God. My theology's better all of a sudden? It's not. See, when we have a spring-loaded readiness to magnify faults in others, we are no longer walking in the shape of Christ. We're walking in the shape of the world. And we're canceling each other, literally. Jesus, and this is the good news for you and for me, when we bump into passages like this that could be so confrontational and so exposing, we have the good news of Christ. He had no rafter to remove, but he was sympathetic to you and me. That's what it says in Hebrews. He had a sympathy, which means he was tempted to vent. Think about that. Christ was tempted to roll his eyes. He was tempted to rant. He was tempted to judge people, and yet he did not. He did call sin, sin. He called evil, evil, and good, good. He used critical thinking and made moral judgments, and he did it from the place of humility, even though he had no sin. No rafter for him to pull out of his own eye. He had spent a life walking this earth and removing specks from people's eyes, but he did so humbly and helpfully as he walked alongside them. Read about the Samaritan woman by the well. Zacchaeus up in a tree. Peter, shamed on a beach. He's working with them gently, lovingly, carefully, slowly, clearly, helpfully. And then to remove sin totally from our life, not just a speck, but sin, he submits his own life. Taking our unrighteousness and trading it for his total righteousness. And then in the process, he takes judgment, perfect judgment, perfect judgment, swerves around us and lands on him. He was judged, 
not for being himself, but for being you and for being me. And why? So that you and I could walk as people of God, adored by God, as we adore God, and now we have a freedom to judge others correctly. We have a freedom to wield judgment in a beautiful way. In fact, I think we can go as far as saying that your manner and the way you hold judgment, it is a statement. It's a commentary on how you see the gospel for you. It's, it's a commentary. So this is what I mean. To the degree that you are aware of and grieved by your own faults, you will see the beauty of what God has done for you. And in response, you'll find a freedom to extend grace and mercy in a helpful way of judging after taking the rafter out of your own eye to walk along and help them with the speck that is making it so hard for them to move forward. They can't move forward. I think it's when we rather be a hypocrite If you would rather hypocritically handle somebody, you've got to know that's a gospel fracture. You have forgotten what has been done for you. When we are ready and hypercritical and spring-loaded, we have forgotten what the gospel has done for us. And this is not to be missed here. Jesus says clearly that with the measure we extend help or condemnation to others, the judge of heaven will dole it out to us. What does this mean? What does this mean? Does this mean that if we screw up judging others, God will remove our salvation? No, it does not. There's literally nothing we can do to perform poorly enough to pull his grip off of us. We know that, or else the gospel's not good. We are secure in Christ. What it does mean is that the hypercritical hypocrite hasn't come to grips with the gospel. They don't understand the gospel. Someone that lives as a person perched on the upper deck, seeing the rest of the world as a villain, does not understand the gospel, is likely not saved. There are lots of religious, rule-following, spring-loaded judges, and not all of them are ruined by the gospel. They're not, right? Lots of Pharisees judging from the upper deck with rafters in their eyes. Lots of rules to follow, not ruined by the gospel. I'm not interested in taking the edge off of this passage, by the way. If you refuse to trust and enjoy that judgment swerved around you and you love to hypocritically smash others because it makes you feel a certain way about yourself, if you cannot see or trust what was done for you, I would not trust your claim to salvation. That's going to be something for you to wrestle with because if you're not freed by the gospel, you're chained to performance. That's going to be a problem for you. I mean, if if you're far from Christ today or you're watching and you're far from Christ. This is what I want you to see in a passage like this, how free the gospel makes you. You're free from the need of being a hypocrite. You're free from the need to feel like you understand everything about everything. You're free from the need to judge others to elevate yourself. You're free from it, you don't have to do it. You're free from this expectation that everybody around you should be perfect. And by the way, if you're judging that on everybody else that you require them to be perfect, you secretly are doing the same thing to yourself and you know yourself you're failing well. Right? You're free from this need because Jesus isn't expecting perfection. Going back to the beginning, that's what the world expects. They expect you to be perfect. And by the way, perfect is changing by the day. The idea of what is right and what is wrong is changing by the day. You'll be perfect today and discontinued tomorrow. But even if you were discontinued by this world, the good news, the goodest part of the good news is we will never be canceled in the Father's kingdom. Because perfect judgment, although delivered, swerved around his kids and landed on his son. 
The gospel is, is that Jesus was judged for us, perfectly judged. And this brings freedom to you and to me to be graceful, careful, and helpful with those who are failing, those who are flawed, those who need help, those who need a speck to be pulled out of their eye. Right? So where do we go from here? As we move through this, we are to judge and we are not to judge. So how do we push through this? I think the big rule, I think if we were going to keep any one thing on the dashboard as we navigate this type of a passage, is just to hold a healthy suspicion of our own pride. Always to know that it's there. The second you want to pull somebody over for something they did, take a good lingering look at your own soul. How are you doing? How are you doing? Where are you challenged in the same way? Why is what they're doing bugging you so much? Do you see your own sin? Is the gospel humbling you? How is the gospel humbling you? Can you be helpful? These are questions you would want to ask yourself as you navigate a passage like this and you see somebody else that's struggling. I think a big problem that we have in the church, capital C, across the country, is we don't like removing the specks in other people's eyes and we don't mind being unhelpful, partly, mostly, because we don't want to deal with our own stuff. We don't want to start pulling rafters out of our own eyes. I'll be honest, as a pastor, I probably wouldn't have said this 10 years ago, but as a pastor... I would be happy if we had all kinds of collisions in this church, people practicing judgment well, people trying to help others with their specs. Maybe they do a great job. Maybe they drop the ball a little bit, but gosh, we're practicing, we're trying. I'd be fine with that. Lots of digging up of courageous love to tell somebody else they need help, to say that they're there for them, to ask a lot of questions, to get to the bottom of a matter a church full of uncomfortable conversations, a church full of people that are ready and willing and motivated to remove rafters from their own eyes and then step into the life, the mess of somebody else to do the same for them. I mean, just think about this. Jesus put his name on immature Christians. He put his name on a church full of messy people doing messy things with messy motivations, right? This is who he attaches himself to. We're a mess. We can't say we love the church if what we're talking about is an idea. Oh, I love the church. But we're thinking, of, you can't say that if you're not willing to say, I love the weirdos that are in the church, right? The total weirdos, the individuals, the quirky people, the ones that bug you. If you love the idea of the church, not the weirdos, you're always going to be a hypocrite. It will be very difficult for you to step into the life of somebody else. So maybe just a few practical rules that we can set up for ourselves when you see someone in trouble, right? First of all, you got to pray and meditate. None of this will be on the screen. Some of it will be helpful, maybe not all of it, but pray and meditate. Take the long route through this text and ask yourself what's going on in your own world. And then here's one that I think is very important. Where does the Bible call this a sin? If you see somebody and they're in trouble and it looks like a sin, where does the Bible say it's a sin? It's possible that it just annoys you, and it's not a sin. Don't call people to repent for something that just annoys you, right? If it's not a sin against God, they don't need to repent, <laughs> all right? Sometimes we just annoy each other. You're annoying, right? Because why? Because personality. That's why. Because you're made a certain way, and it's not like the person next to you. We annoy each other. It's not always a sin. So where does the Bible label that a problem? 
Another rule is, where does sin lurk in me as I think about this? Why does this issue get my attention so much? Of all the things I could be upset about in the people of God, why is it this thing that really gets my goat? That will tell you more about yourself than it will about the other person and the help that they need. Right? Another thought. Be thoughtful in timing about the delivery. It matters. Just because it's a good time for you to have that conversation with somebody else does not mean it's a good time for the other person, right? Every time is not the best time. So it does matter. Pray about it and then pray about how to do it, right? And probably to go along with that, whenever you walk beside them, not above them, when you come next to them, shoulder to shoulder to help them through this, encourage them. And when I say encouragement, I know there's this popular thing that came up in the church world, and I can't remember the the exact name. I'm sure there is one. An encouragement sandwich or a rebuke sandwich, something sandwich. And the whole idea is is you, you say something really nice just so the sting you're about to bring them doesn't hurt as bad, and then you finish with something else nice so that everybody's happy when you're done. I mean, I guess, whatever. But here's the thing. If you're going to just say something nice just to take the sting off of the thing that needs to be said, what are you doing exactly, right? What are you doing? Say what needs to be said. If you encourage them, encourage them, not just by making something up, but what are they doing that is a godly characteristic that has inspired you? Where do they look like Jesus? Where have they been helpful to you? You should say that. And you might also say, I struggle with this just as much. I'm noticing it in you because I see it in myself so clearly. (laughs) I'm in the same club you are. This helps. But this thing of just buttering them up so you can sucker punch them and then butter them up again and then out the door you go, I don't know that that's very helpful. And then another thought, let them know that you're open to discuss it and that you don't know everything. Ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions. Because you're going to learn something, I promise. And then the last one, maybe, use scripture, don't use your opinions. Base your judgment off a standard that is built by God. We are different in the culture in the fact that we think that we do change as people, but what is a sin and not a sin, that, that does not change. That does not change. It's flopped from the culture, right? We're good and bad things do change, but people don't. We, we believe the opposite. You, you're free to change. And the Holy Spirit actually provokes the change, so we know he carries it through. But what God has breathed upon and said is beautiful, and what he despises and said is sin, that doesn't change. Doesn't. So use scripture, not your opinions. Friends, this is how you build community when it really matters. When it really matters. When you're in a living room, in your community group, and you start slamming into each other, this is how you build community. Not just by dropping out and finding another community where people are not as annoying, right? But by working through it. Otherwise, we're left with really only two options left. And that's just to blow up people because we march around with a big plank out of our eye and we're not even really careful with it. That or we just abstain out of laziness, out of pride. This is how you build community. This is how the church is built. This is how a healthy church is built anyway. And I think the good finale of the gospel is that there will be a day without judgment. Think about this. God's judgment. There will be a day where judgment will cease. God's judgment will be exhausted. What that means is is that God's judgment against sin and disorder and chaos and all that has fallen will either fall on the shoulders of Christ or it will fall on your shoulders. Right? 
if you do not trust in Jesus to receive that wrath, that judgment, if you do not trust him to do it, then you're trusting yourself to do it. But after the end of all ends, it will be exhausted. There will be no judgment left. We'll no longer judge each other. No ranting, no venting, no bad theology, no hypocrisy, no bad habits, no more canceling each other. Sin doesn't move around. And this is the place where the bride of the church is perfected and brought close to the groom of Jesus. Until then, we have each other to slam into and do the best we can by just pulling the rafters out of our own eyes and stepping into another's life courageously to help them, to judge not, and then to judge, to do both.